What a great interview. Uh, I, this really was the first interview, and this is going to sound bad, that I was a little intimidated going into, but... You know, we've had people on with credentials as 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 deep as Doctor uh, as 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 Doctor Wiseman, but um, just somebody who's got a comet named after her, for, <laughs> you know, that she discovered when she was a graduate student. Um, she um, it was a fascinating interview, um, very thoughtful, very thoughtful, uh, amazing depth. Um, you know, if she was a singer, we'd we'd say she's got great reach because she, she's able to float in in both worlds, astronomy and faith, and it was like seamless. And this is one that I'm going to listen to over and over because um, she um, had a lot um, to say. She had a lot to say. What What are your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was very blessed by the conversation. Uh, I love how she pointed out awe and worship as. Part of our response to science. I think so many Christians approach science in fear that somehow it's going to take away from the Bible or from their faith. Uh, but for me, it, the, the opposite has been true. And I see that um, clearly, clearly for Dr. Wiseman, that she has grown in her faith and awe and wonder of God through her, her studies of science, of, of the universe around us. Yeah, and you know, for those seminaries who do teach apologetics, I think they should all subscribe to our show. Not not necessarily because of you and I, but because the guests that we have have such good advice about might, where we might be missing the mark in our current apologetics. And uh, boy, her answer on the Kalam cosmological argument was, I thought, very informative. So folks, you're going to love this interview. Stay tuned. Today we have Dr. Jennifer Weissman, who is an astronomer, author, and speaker. She studies the process of star and planet formation in our galaxy using radio, optical, and infrared telescopes. She is also interested in national science policy and public science engagement, and directs the program of Dialogue on Science, Ethics, and Religion for the American Association for the advancement of science. She received her bachelor's in physics from MIT, discovering Comet Weissman Skiff in 1987, and continued her studies at Harvard, earning her PhD in astronomy in 1995. She's currently a senior astrophysicist at the Goddard Space Flight Center. Dr. Weissman is a fellow of the American Scientific Affiliation, a network of Christians in science. She's authored several essays addressing the relationship of astronomy and Christian faith and frequently gives pub public talks on the excitement and scientific discovery. She grew up on an Arkansas farm enjoying late night stargazing walks with her parents and pets. Welcome, Dr. Reisman. How did you become interested in astronomy? I grew up in a rural area of Arkansas, right in the middle of the U.S., uh, grew up in the north part of the state, which is known as the Ozark Mountains. They're really hills, um, but it's a beautiful area. And 
most of my childhood was spent living out on a on a farm so i had a lot of exposure to the natural world we lived near some beautiful lakes and rivers and i you know spent a lot of time swimming and boating and and then around the farm just hiking exploring around and just really grew to love exploration of nature i love even to this day i love forests and streams and wandering around and every day is different when you're out even in the same place out in the natural world every day is different because the seasons change and animal life uh, wildlife come and go and change every day and so I, I just enjoyed that and part of that was the nighttime we, we lived in a place where at least at that time the night sky was still very dark and not not too polluted by the, the lights from the nearby town. So uh, you could see stars pretty much from horizon to horizon. And I uh, enjoyed that. And at the same time, as I was growing up, some of these uh, probes were starting to send back images that you know NASA sent out the pioneer probes and the Voyager probes that went out to the planets in our solar system and sent back some really amazing images of these planets in our solar system and some of their moons that we'd never seen before, had not seen in that detail, these exotic worlds like the moons of Io and Europa around Jupiter and moons of Saturn. I was just fascinated by this. I, I watched the, uh, the Cosmos program uh, uh, hosted by Carl Sagan as I was growing up and I just knew that I wanted to be part of that enterprise of exploring uh, deep space. I didn't know whether that was by being trying to be a, an astronaut or a, an engineer that designs these kinds of probes or an astronomer or something else. I wasn't sure how to get involved in it, but I just was really drawn to how we could explore space and, and even visit some of these exotic worlds. I wanted to be a part of that, but I didn't know how, but that's, that's how it kind of got started. So you we brought up Carl Sagan and Cosmos, and I was really touched by the humility that I think he showed in in his production of Contact. However, um, he famously started his show with the Cosmos is all that there is, that there was, and there ever will be. And that might have been seen as kind of a tweak of Christians who say that about their God. Growing up um, in Arkansas, did you have a faith background, and and did that conflict at all when when you began to explore the world of, say, uh, cosmos and found out that that many scientists um, and 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 spokespeople, at least for science, maybe didn't share uh, a faith. I grew up in a Christian family and we were involved in a community church that was really filled with love and thoughtful people. I didn't know any scientists. Uh, in fact, we didn't even live near a university or anything like that where I would have much of a chance to know people that were formally practicing science, but we were uh blessed with very good teachers in our school and science was seen as a very uh, good and important subject to study 
And in the church environment I grew up in, we understood that the natural world was God's creation. And so therefore I grew up with a sense of harmony that the natural world is God's creation. It shows God's goodness and studying it through science must therefore uh, be something that would be honoring to God. So I, I really did not ever grow up with any sense that there should be some kind of conflict between scientific study of the natural world and a uh, Christian appreciation of God as being the author of creation. Now, when I began to uh, get older and kind of start hearing from other prestigious scientific voices out there describing things, I, I would sometimes hear in the way they phrase things or say things, things that seem to uh, sometimes kind of diminish the importance or the reality of religious beliefs. And I, I kind of picked that up. I didn't quite know how to process that, but I, I even as a teenager, I could kind of discern the difference between when a scientific spokesperson was talking about the science or what we're discovering through uh, uh, exploration, where there's probes or telescopes or other microscopes or whatever, and then what was the kind of philosophical interpretation they were pasting on that. And if they said something that seemed to say that science had somehow shown us that all religious beliefs were simply uh, primitive or mythology, I picked up on that, you know, and as a teenager, I couldn't quite articulate that, but I could already discern the difference between when somebody was talking about what we're learning through scientific exploration and what people are inferring from that, that I felt uh, was was not quite right. Um, then when I went on into formal education, uh, university and so forth, I really uh, did not have a personal conflict between science and Christian faith. And I think it's because as I as I was growing up in the in the church, uh, even though we took the Bible pretty literally, um, even some of the, those creation accounts. Um, uh, you know, the six days of creation and all of that. But we were also taught that God didn't tell us all the details in scripture and that we should keep a sense of humility, uh, that God may tell us more of the details uh, through other means like science. And so that opened the door for me when I did go on into formal science to realize that as we, as I learned more and more about the vastness of space and time, that that wasn't a threat to what the truths of scripture it was god enabling us to understand more detail and that scripture had certain purposes of truth to tell us and that didn't always include the details of 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 how nature works and god had given us the gift of science to help us to learn more so i think it's those kind of fundamental principles that helped me um, to keep from having any sort of major sense of conflict, although I did have to kind of rethink things and still do, you know, as, as we're learning more and more, I'm constantly kind of uh, uh, reflecting as we all should on how the truths that we're gaining through scientific means mesh with the truths that we experience in our human life and in our interactions and in our understanding of faith. 
I'm going to let Christine jump in here, but that last element that you just shared with us um, impels me to ask this question. We've met people in, in our ministry and in what we do who embrace what you just said, the, the rethinking and the fact that we're constantly learning and having to maybe reprocess how we've thought about things in the past. And we've also met people who are very uncomfortable with that. Maybe they grew up in a background where certainty was much more of a priority than curiosity, and they feel uncomfortable or almost shaken that what they have held on to in the past might might be falling like a house of cards. Um, in your experience, um, have, have you met with both of those uh, groups and and how would you how would you advise somebody who's in the latter group who who isn't as excited or maybe um, uh, the wonder aspect doesn't come across as wonder to them as much as um, unstable uncertainty. Well, I think we have to always be re-examining what what is it that our lives are based on um, what are the fundamental principles and truths that uh, that we that we live by and where do they come from and i think being shaken up every once in a while while it's not pleasant it's actually a blessing because it causes us to go right back and look again at what the foundations of our beliefs are, where they came from, what's really critical, and what maybe isn't. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I have to kind of look at what the specific issues are that people are struggling with. Um, for some, you know, the kind of classic struggle is, is for some Christians, is how long did it take for God to create the heavens and the earth? And are the days in Genesis, are they literal days? Um, and if we understand, as science is telling us from many different directions, that actually our universe has been developing over 13.8 billion years uh, from a burst of inflation at, at the big, what we kind of, originally kind of jokingly called the Big Bang, but at the beginning of, of time as we know it in this universe, to the development of, of atoms, molecules, gases, stars, galaxies, and even generations of stars coming and going, enabling the formation of planets and planetary systems, uh, we begin to understand that creation itself, at least the universe we live in, is dynamic, that it's not stagnant that it's been changing over 13 billion years is that in conflict with the biblical accounts of creation but then you go back and you actually look at those at the at the biblical literature and if you take it seriously as i do as 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 god's word you want to use all the gifts that god has given us to take it seriously and part of taking it seriously is making sure that we understand the context of these individual scriptures within the Bible, the original audiences, um, how they would have understood the message being given them, 
and what the message is that God meant for us many generations later from from those accounts and revelations and so forth. And so it, it becomes clear to me, at least, when you look back at some of the creation accounts, and I say some of them because there's more than one in the Bible. There are, there are two in the two creation accounts in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, and then there's more discussions in other parts of the Bible. Some of my favorite accounts of creation and, and how God views the natural world are actually in the book of Job, in the later parts of the book of Job, and certainly in the Psalms. But as we look at these passages, we realize that the, the message was not about God's timeline per se. We can envision perhaps, as I did as a child, kind of instant appearances of things which God could certainly do and has and could have done, but that isn't what the scriptures are actually prescribing to us. They're telling us about an ordered creation, and they're also telling quite astonishingly to the original audiences that the created orders of nature are not themselves gods. They are not to be worshipped. There's only one God who is the creator and the author of all of creation. And you can also, when you look in the original Hebrew language, see some interesting parallels about God uh, creating structure and then God creating function for different aspects of creation. So looking into the writings of people like John Walton and others is really helpful so that we don't miss the message that God really wanted us to get from these passages about uh, the creation itself. That to me, I think is, is freeing, but it, it also does require sometimes going back and looking again at the basis for what we believe and why we believe it. Um, now, in my own my own personal journey, that wasn't so hard for me because even though I kind of grew up imagining a very kind of uh, instant creation type of interpretation of those creation accounts because in the Bible, because that I didn't really have any reason not to think that way. But as I learned more about how amazing this universe is and how incredible we can actually see the development of the universe by looking with telescopes into deep space, which is really like looking back in time because it's taken time for the light to get to us from anything. In particular, for other galaxies, we're looking back millions and sometimes billions of years. We can actually see how things have developed over time. And I'm, I've just, I'm still uh, just awestruck by this. It shows um, that creation is ordered, it's, it's progressing according to the laws of physics, the laws of nature, those very foundational laws um, that we believe as Christians are part of God's created creative power, have enabled the universe to develop that can support uh, life eventually, and, and even advanced life, at least on one planet, uh, how marvelous that is. And so seeing the details of that has helped me to kind of look back at those original interpretations that I had in, in, in my childhood and to, and to look back at the scriptures and see that maybe, maybe that wasn't the best way of envisioning God's creation when I read those passages because now God has enabled us to learn so much more that we are enriched by understanding what we learn through science. And that actually enriches our understanding of those original scriptures that tell us that God is the author of all of this wonder and majesty. Now, for me, my, my big challenge uh, of faith was not about 
this. I, I've, I've been able to kind of uh, almost joyfully adapt to understanding scripture as related to the age and progression of creation. Uh, but to me, the challenge came more when I was in university and was challenged more about the authenticity of, of the New Testament and whether we can believe things that Jesus said. Did Jesus really say those things? Did he really exist? You know, can we really trust those things? And, and uh, that was more challenging to me personally. And yet that also caused me to have to in my distress, go back and try to find out, you know, why do I believe what I believe? And have I seen the power of God working in people um, in ways that even if my trust in scripture is challenged, that I can still affirm that I have, have experienced the presence of God or seen the power of God working. And I could finally say, yes, I have seen that. And then God restored at, by helping me study and learn more from others how to trust New Testament scriptures as well. And that, and that while there are, you know, some difficulties comparing the different gospels and comparing with, with uh, some of the details recorded there by different voices and different witnesses, the story as a whole is very sound. And our faith in Jesus Christ is well-founded um, on scholarship, on history, and on personal experience. But I think God let me go through that kind of valley of distress so that I would take the faith seriously, use the, the, the studies and the intellect that, that uh, God has given us to really rethink and re-examine things and to see exactly what my faith is based on. I really like that. Um, to me, that seems like you have really developed a genuine and deep faith rather than just a shallow, superficial understanding. Um, well, it's, it's and a annual process. Right? So, so what are some of the hot topics in astronomy these days? So we're living in a really incredible time to be humans on planet Earth. Uh, it's only been about a century of human existence that we've even known that there are galaxies outside of our own Milky Way galaxy. So just as a little reminder, we live on planet Earth. Planet Earth is orbiting one star, the sun, and there are a few other planets orbiting our sun as well. But we now know that there's at least 200 to 400 billion stars like our sun also collected in this group we call our galaxy, the Milky Way, um, held kind of mutually together by the, the pools of gravity. And it's only been about a century that we've known that there are other galaxies as well. And in fact, there are hundreds of billions of other galaxies uh, outside of our Milky Way in our observable universe. So we live in a truly enormous universe filled with, if you count the number of galaxies and multiply that by hundreds of billions of stars, it's, it's really hard to fathom. Now, in our last few decades, the tel telescope technology has improved in incredibly. So we are able now to study things about the universe that, we've ne that humans were never able to see or study or know before. So what a privileged time we live in. By looking at these galaxies outside our own with better and better telescopes, we've been able to discern that in fact galaxies have changed over cosmic time. As we look at other galaxies, 
we're of course seeing them as they were when the light began its journey to us from that galaxy and galaxies are far away so some of these galaxies are millions of light years away some of them are billions of light years away so we can kind of get a sense by looking at these very distant galaxies how they appear uh, studying their compositions we can understand how galaxies themselves have merged together with other galaxies over time They've had generations of stars come and go, and stars themselves are little factories we now know that are shining light because the atoms in their core under great pressure are going through a reaction called fusion. And that fusion reaction produces heavier elements and also light. And so stars are shining light, but they're also producing elements like carbon and oxygen and nitrogen. And then when stars uh, get to the end of their ability to do this kind of fusion, they become unstable, they expel this material, and it can be swept up in the next generations of stars that are continually forming in galaxies. They're coalescing through collapsing balls of interstellar gas. We now understand that star formation is continuing even in our own galaxy, and that because of that heavier material produced in previous generations of stars, the stars forming now and in the epoch of our own sun have solid, the ability to have solid materials forming around them and disks of dust and debris. And it's in those disks where planets themselves can form. We can see all this through the time machine of astronomy. Lately, what we're discovering in astronomy is a fantastic uh, advancement in that we are discovering planets orbiting stars other than our sun. So we knew about the planets, of course, in our own solar system. But even when I was in graduate school, we didn't know um, at first whether or not there were planets orbiting other stars. We thought there should be, but we hadn't been able to detect them. They're very difficult. It's hard to see something as dim and small as a planet next to something as bright as a star from a great distance. Our technologies become better. We've, we've discovered some kind of nifty indirect techniques of looking at other stars and discerning if they have planets around them. And so we have indeed now discovered what we call exoplanets. These are planets outside of our solar system. And we went from knowing of none of them when I started graduate school to knowing of over uh, 3,000, I think we're over 4,000 potential candidates of exoplanets as of today, it changes every day, um, outside of our solar system, just in our own little neighborhood of the galaxy that we're in. And we know at least 3,000 of these have more than one planet in them. So exoplanets are a very hot topic in astronomy right now, and astronomers are already using techniques to discern the, the nature of the atmospheres of some of these exoplanets. Uh, what's in their atmospheres? That's how we can determine whether or not any of them uh, might be similar to the planets in our own solar system. Many of them are, are too hot or too cold uh, or too gaseous to harbor life or life as we would, would recognize it. But uh, we're getting better and better at observing smaller types of planets that might be what we might call Earth-like or super Earth-like. And we're also very rapidly developing new, tel new generation telescopes that will be able to study more details of these exoplanets and their characteristics to see if they might in fact be habitable, um, even for simple life. So I think this, that's an exciting and a hot topic and an advancement that's 
noteworthy uh, just within the last few decades. And then on the other kind of cosmic scale, uh, uh, astronomers have been measuring more and more precisely how galaxies are relating to each other, how they are seeming to, in fact, move apart from each other. Now, astronomer Edwin Hubble helped confirm that a century ago, but the surprise is that we have found out that this expansion of the universe actually seems to be getting faster. It's accelerating. And we not, we didn't expect that because we expected that that gravitational pull of all the matter in the universe would be slowing down the expansion of the universe. Um, so what's speeding it up? We don't really know. We, we've given it a name called dark energy, which is really more like a force that seems to be accelerating the universe out. We're trying to understand more about that. That's a hot topic. And that kind of counteracts another feature of our universe that we can't see, but we see its gravitational effects, and that's called dark matter. Dark matter seems to fill galaxies and, and even the space between galaxies um, in a way that we can see its gravitational effects, but we, we, we don't really know what it is. We can't see any radiation from it. So this is, these are some of the hot topics uh, in astronomy these days that are driving uh, um, some of the big questions and some of the dreams for newer telescopes and probes. And of course, we're still exploring our own solar system. We are developing a whole suite of probes that will continue to go to places like Mars and hopefully the moons of other planets. We want to go back visit Europa and some other exotic places and study more about our own solar system. Uh, maybe even finding uh, water under the ice of some of these moons. We know it's there, but being able to learn more about it. Uh, we've even discovered a couple of objects lately that were whizzing through our solar system, a comet and an asteroid-like object, but they didn't originate in our solar system. They were expelled from some other star system. We can tell by their trajectory that they're just passing through. So by studying them and their chemical nature, we can study something about the star system that they came from and compare it to our own. These are just some examples of hot topics in astronomy and astrophysics that are fascinating and just opening up all kinds of new questions and opportunities. Oh, thank you. That's super exciting. Um, but our sun is not a first generation star, correct? I mean, because That's we have correct. second, third generation. What do you think? Well, um, it's hard to say, but we know now that our sun is not a first-generation star because it has these heavier elements uh, mixed in. I mean, most of the material is hydrogen, but within mixed within that, we have other atoms and, and uh, material that we know uh, must have been forged in the fusion process of a previous generation of star. And so... Um, that's very interesting, right? I mean, we, we have had, that's why I think the provision of time is very important. It's taken time for our universe to be able to not only forge the first stars, which must have been formed out of those very primitive elements, hydrogen and not much else, maybe a little helium, and maybe a little lithium around here and there, but, but uh, over time, these the more massive stars that have shorter lifespans have been able through that fusion process within them to 
forge these heavier elements and make it available for subsequent generations of stars. You know, my own research as I was starting to learn how to do astronomy in graduate school for real, uh, involved studying these interstellar clouds, these clouds of gas and dust that exist between stars in our own galaxy. And it's in these, these uh, interstellar clouds where we find stellar nurseries, these little pockets of gas that mostly are turbulent, but every once in a while, if you get a little pocket of gas that's got enough density, its own gravitational pull will pull material in to a clump, a dense clump. If there's enough of that mass, the pressure will be very high. And that can, if there's enough mass, create the fusion process that basically turns that clump of gas into a star. And that star formation process is very active in different regions of our galaxy. I studied the Orion region. Some of you uh, listening or watching this who have your own telescope have looked at the Orion Nebula. That's an example of one of these hot pockets of star formation where the newest stars have basically recently turned on and they're still surrounded by this, this gas out of which they form. The, the new stars, the massive ones, have enough energy, enough powerful light to, to go back out into the surrounding gas, light it up, and ionize the little atoms in that gas. That creates the colors that we see in these beautiful, spectacular nebulae that we often like to take images of with telescopes. But it tells us that star formation is recent. And then what I did uh, was to use other kinds of telescopes, radio telescopes and, and infrared telescopes to look in the Orion star forming nursery behind that visible beautiful part. There's a bigger, darker cloud that's invisible, invisible light, but you can see into it with other kinds of light, radio waves and infrared light. And you can see protostars that are still coalescing out of this collapsing dark gas. They haven't turned on yet as to stars, but you can see them and these other kinds of light as they heat up and as material is falling in. And that's how I learned how active star formation is. We're learning how it takes place. We're learning even how planetary systems form in disks of dust that form along with the stars. So it's just wonderful to be a part of discovery. And that's what I like about science. There's so much we haven't learned. There's so much that just by having new types of technology and tools, it gives us new types of eyes and we can understand things both on the very large scale of space and the very small scales of space, uh, even in our own bodies and within atoms and cells that we would not be able to know about otherwise. Um, and, and on different scales of time as well, we're able to learn new things when we have new tools and new types of eyes. And uh, there's always something new to learn uh, if we're willing to explore. So my thought to you as you're describing this wonderful universe that really has only just begun to come into focus, if I might, within, you said, the last hundred years, as far as the idea of these millions and, did you say billions or trillions of galaxies? Um, well, there, there's billions in, in, in um, what we call the observable universe, meaning within the the, the, the part of space-time that we could ever conceivably see, so yes. Okay, so let me start there. So David famously said, who is man that thou art mindful of him? And, and in David's world, 
he could only see the observable stars. Um, working backwards from somebody who doesn't have my background or your background in the faith, uh, and somebody may, who, who also grew up on, on Cosmos and on, on listening um, to Carl Sagan and, and views this amazing universe and now with at least 3,000 exoplanets, the idea that, that we're the only or the unique maybe life presence in the universe is now brought into question. Right. Um, the idea that there, there not, not might only be habitable planets, but there might be habited <laughs> planets in some cases. Um, a mind coming through all that might find it hard to connect with not the, uh, the God of the galaxies, but the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The idea that God is reduced to a narrow scratch of earth in, in the Middle East and then works out from that. Um, so speaking to somebody who, who, who might believe in a God of the galaxies, uh, say a deist, I think most people, the argument between faith, uh, oftentimes centers on atheists versus Christians or, or, or theists. I think most people default are deists and they believe there might be a creator beyond all this, but they find it a difficult step to go from what Anthony Flew accepted at the end of his life, which is theism, to that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If uh, how how do we take that leap um, in in your understanding uh, for somebody who recognizes that there might be a Creator, but this next step seems to be insurmountable. It's a very, very good and deep question, and I think any thoughtful person um, grapples with the, these types of questions um, a lot. So uh, I think in that kind of grandest scale, people uh, see the universe, the order of nature, the order of the physical world, um, and often come to the conclusion that there must be some purpose or power behind all of this. Um, although it isn't really necessary that that is the case. Uh, others have looked at the kind of long-term history of the universe and looking at what we project as the long-term future of the universe and basically concluded that... Um, it, it must be meaningless, uh, you know, so, so, so these kind of philosophical conclusions by looking at the natural world are not a foregone uh, conclusion for everyone. I, I, there, there are different reactions, but it is sometimes the case, as you say, that people look at the natural world and kind of get a sense that there must be some higher power, maybe even something we would call a god, but how does that relate to that very particular god, as you say, the god of Abraham on one little planet in one little tiny epoch of, of life here? And I would say that there are different, um, different levels, even in our own life, of experiencing reality. We have this kind of, of large-scale reality as we look at the natural world, um, and then we look at the realities that we experience in our 
fragile little lives on this planet. And it, that is reality too. For me, um, I look at the universe as a whole, but I also look at the character of human nature and what we experience um, in life on this planet, the good and the bad, the joyful and the ugly. Um, where does that come from? Where does our behavior come from? Some of that is explorable through science as we look at our brains and our survival instincts and, and those kinds of, of, of evolutionary social behaviors. Um, but some of it is really much more described, I think, for me, by the explorations of scripture. And what we learn about in scripture, I think, is uh, is only a tiny bit, of course, of, of, of all the truths that are, there are to be held in the broader universe. But it does tell us something about the nature of humanity and the nature of God. And the way that I see the revelations in scripture is that the God of the universe has in fact chosen to reveal a bit more of this personal God's nature to humans when we were ready, when we were ready as, as uh, intelligent beings to understand this and to understand not only something of God's nature, but also to understand something of our own responsibility, to be able to make choices, to be able to make moral choices, to realize um, that we can choose right and wrong and to and to unfortunately often choose wrong and to recognize that. Um, I think it isn't that God of the universe is reduced to only being the God of one little tribe um, in the Middle East uh, and then radiating from there. It's that the God of the universe has always been uh, uh, present and responsible for everything in the universe and every life form, but has revealed some details when this, this mammalian group on planet Earth was able to understand it and also to be responsible for their own reactions. And, and really what it reveals to us is that this God of the universe wants to have a personal relationship with life and in particular with humans who are capable of recognizing that kind of relationship and entering into it. It's really incredible to me that the, the final answer, if, if you will, for um, exploring the meaning of life is not going to be found through science. As much as I love science, it's not understanding the original forces of the universe. It's not understanding what happened right at the Big Bang or before the Big Bang. It's not understanding the multiverse. All of those things are important and I'm curious about them. But the, the final truth, according to what's revealed in scripture and through the prophets that are recorded in scripture and through the life of Jesus Christ is that the, the, the ultimate truth is not a force of nature. It's a, a person, if you will. It's, it's a, a being with personhood, the, the being of, of what we would call God, and that that God is, is most exhibited in a characteristic that we call love. Um, and that God is trying to help us to have a, a real, meaningful, and eternal life. Uh, um, in relationship with God, even though we live in bodies that themselves are not 
do not exist in this form permanently, but we ourselves can have that relationship. So all of that revelation, as I see through scripture, is giving little tidbits of truth to people that are emerging to the point of being able to receive it and are emerging to the point of being able to recognize responsibility for their actions, to do right and wrong, to choose whether or not to enter into a, a relationship with their own creator God, and to, uh, to begin to learn more about what that's like. And then God finally, I believe, revealed himself most thoroughly in terms of character in this person of Jesus Christ, amazing, um, revelation and then of course the miraculous uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ told us that there's really something uh, something eternal something majestic in that personal relationship with God that we can have ourselves that he wants us to have so I, I really think there are different levels of, of truth and they are not conflicting they are in fact telling us things on the grand scale when we look at the cosmic order of nature but also on the the personal scale and it's all a part of truth i'm interested now i don't i don't want to bring up names to make you pick sides that's not the purpose of this but it is to set um uh, the question up and that is your 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 hermeneutic of science and, and, and to ask this question, um, I'm going to bring up Mary Schweitzer and Jason Lyle, um, both fellow believers in Christ. And one is a fellow astronomer. And, and, you know, Mary Schweitzer, of course, is famous for finding soft tissue in a T-Rex um, thigh bone. But Mary was interviewed and she was asked about her relationship, her faith relationship to science. And she said, when I look in my microscope, I don't bring my faith with me. I, I look and I report on the data, which was a comment she made. Jason Lyle on the other end of the spectrum said that it's his faith that informs his astronomy. Uh, and it has led him to... Um, as a as a person who who ascribes to the young earth creation variety uh, of interpretation of Genesis, it's led him to come up with an idea about the speed of light that makes the rate different by what direction it's going in. So I'm just wondering, uh, as a as a scientist who happens to be a Christian, as both Mary and Jason are, what do you think is the responsible approach? Or, or what do you do when you look through your telescope? Hmm. Well, I think um, I would say for myself that my faith is part of all of my life. So, so my faith tells me that God is responsible for all of creation and has given us the gift of, of science to investigate the details of how nature works. And science is an investigation of truth. Uh, it's, it's a certain kind of truth. We use scientific tools to understand the truths of how the physical world works. How do the physical forces of nature work? Uh, but it is certainly an investigation toward truth and science in its, at its best. Now, science is done by fallible human beings, of course, but, but at its best, science is done in a way that's that's self-correcting in the sense that we we posit certain things we use our tools to try to test 
certain ideas or do observations. We can, we can do analyses and try to interpret what we're seeing. But other scientists are doing similar experiments and, and trying to reproduce things and, and test things and can even challenge one another. So we're always honing our understanding of, of, of the natural world through, through sci the scientific processes. But sciences can't answer all the questions that we have as human beings. Science cannot answer the questions of why is there anything at all? Why is there a, why is there a universe or a multiverse at all in terms of the big capital W? Um, we can understand the, the why in terms of physical cause and effect through science, but we can't understand the bigger, the, the answer the bigger philosophical questions with the tools of science. That's not what science was meant for. Likewise, our biblical texts, I don't believe, can answer some of the technical questions of the physical universe. They never were meant to be that way. I mean, modern science is only a few centuries old, and some of these biblical texts are, are accounts from thousands of years ago to people who uh, didn't, didn't view the world or discuss things in the same kind of scientific framing that we do now. And yet those truths are very important, the truths that are revealed in scripture. So if my, my concern is that if we take certain passages of scripture that are not scientific texts and interpret them in a way that requires a certain scientific conclusion about the natural world, and then we're kind of forced then to kind of make sure that our scientific tools give us that same answer, we're not really doing honest science because the science technical tools are not meant to kind of confirm a preconceived answer to things like the speed of light or, or how gravity works or the age of the universe or so forth. We have, that's what science is for, is to help us to find those kinds of physical truths. Likewise, I don't think that um, the physical discoveries in science can or should be used to try to answer questions that are beyond science. You know, do we observe something in the natural world that proves or disproves God? No, I don't think we can can do that. Um, and so uh, that's just not what tools of the sun can do for us. We have to make sure we're the right kind of the right kind of question. So I would say that you don't necessarily, when you're doing good science, it's not that your faith should be used to give you a pre-conclusion of what your scientific discoveries are going to. That's that, that to me the right use of faith or science, nor should you be using science kind of devoid of a broader sense, if you're a person of faith, of your understanding of order and, and purpose in the natural world, that you can use scientific knowledge to help broaden your view in your faith. I know that my study in astronomy and of the universe has certainly enriched my understanding of the majesty of God and how God has worked through, you know, unimaginable space and time uh, in the universe and how intriguing it is to me to imagine what must be going on in other pockets of the universe that we cannot yet see the details of, but God knows all about it. So, um, so these are th ways I think you can kind of have a healthy sense of complementarity between science and faith without trying to use the, 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 uh, the wrong tool to address an, a, a, an unmatched type of question. Christine, I'm going to let you jump in, but uh, doctor, I, before we're done here, I, I have to ask you um, 
I want to come back to the universe or multiverse. I have a question for you on that. But go ahead, Christine. Well, I, I was going to kind of continue on that um, thread and, and, and really just talk about how, how you came to be involved in the conversation on science and faith and religion. Um, you say that it wasn't um, like a big stumbling block for your faith growing up, and yet you had to kind of reassess and grow and um, reflect on how you used to understand and maybe change your perspective. So how did you become, you know, kind of a public figure on the topic of science and faith? You're the director of the um, Dozer Project, which stands for the Science Dialogue on Science, Ethics and Religion for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So, so you've kind of come into this really, you know, kind of big public role on this topic. What led you to pursue that? It's interesting because I did not really pursue it at all. It, it's just that there's so much, I found out there's so much thirst out in, in the public and even in the scientific community to hear about, first of all, what we're discovering in science, in the universe in particular. Um, People love space. I do too. You know, we're very curious about how we fit into the, the broader universe, what we're discovering about the universe and our origins and our future and how we fit into the universe. And people do want to know how that fits into the other important values that we have as human beings, uh, our sense of community, our sense of purpose and our a sense of, of religious faith, which for many people is a very important part of their lives. How can or does or doesn't this all fit together? There's a huge thirst out there. So I was simply doing my astronomy and, and growing in my understanding of, uh, of the universe as a research scientist when I think just kind of informally once I was invited to make a presentation about my science to a group of Christians who are very interested in science. There's an organization called the American Scientific Affiliation, the ASA, um, that really is a network of people who are interested in the relationship of science and Christian faith. And they were having a summer meeting and they were inviting people to come, including students. I was a graduate student at the time and they were, they, uh, I went to one of those meetings. I was really encouraged by meeting people who were very, very uh, um, smart and curious about the natural world, and yet they were uh, people with strong uh, Christian faith as well. And I was very encouraged by that. And I was asked to just come and give a talk there about the astronomy that I was learning about star formation. So I, I did that and found that there was much interest uh, there. And then I, I think I gave maybe a similar presentation once to a small church gathering and realized that what people in churches are interested in a lot is not necessarily a deep theological discussion, but really they just want to know, like everybody else does, what we're discovering in science and in particular in, about space and astronomy. And I found that um, there's a lot of thirst for this and to hear from people also who are coming from a faith a commitment is also encouraging to people of faith to know that people in science can be also people of faith. So I began just informally every once in a while giving a talk here and there to a 
a church or a, a, a campus college group, just about mainly about astronomy, but, but then how I kind of personally have, have been blessed by both um, the, the faith that, that, um, that I have and also the studies of the universe and how that kind of fits together in my own life kind of helped me maybe kind of think through that myself. Uh, but I found out that there's a huge interest in this. And so once you kind of talk one place, then, then the word gets around and somebody, um, some other group would like to have the same discussion. And then I, of course, was being blessed in graduate school, especially by hearing from other people of faith in different academic disciplines, scientific disciplines, but also other academic disciplines about what they were learning in their line of research and their line of expertise and how it meshed with their convictions as people of faith. And that was really, um, gave me great encouragement and insight as well. So really this was all kind of an informal avocation on the side of my own scientific research. But uh, at some point years into my postdoctoral uh, research life, um, I was asked uh, to help lead this program that already existed uh, within a scientific society of dialogue on science, ethics, and religion, which is not really a religious group per se, it's part of a secular scientific society, but really trying to build better bridges between the scientific community and religious communities of different faith traditions. And somehow they had, they wanted to have somebody who's active in science to kind of help uh, facilitate this program. I really didn't, uh, didn't, know the details of what I would be doing in that role, but, uh, but I found that um, there is a tremendous, again, once again, discovered there's a tremendous thirst and hunger in our society to build a better connection between what we're learning in science and these values that people have from different faith traditions. Uh, how, how can it fit together? Are there things that religious communities and scientists can do together? Um, even if, you know, regardless of whether the scientists do or don't share the faith perspectives of different religious communities, but are there shared interests? And there certainly are. I've, I've discovered that the hot topics in science today are of tremendous interest to faith communities. And then scientists, scientists of goodwill, are very interested in having a positive relationship with the public and in particular even with various faith communities and wanting to hear and understand what the questions and interests are that are they're, they're really relevant to the lives of people in our society today. So for example, topics like uh, artificial intelligence or neuroscience, how we understand the human brain and our behavior and are we responsible for our behaviors. Um, you can imagine that that's of interest not only for the scientific research and understanding, but also how that manifests itself in our understanding of ourselves as human beings and, and how we make choices and, uh, and our responsibility for our choices. And those are, of course, are very interest for uh, a great interest for people of faith and in faith communities and congregations and in pastoral settings. And so here we find synergy of interest. What about um, uh, the, the care of our, our planet Earth, environmental stewardship. Well, here we find interest both, of course, in the scientific community, understanding ecology, understanding what's happening um, in our environment and with climate change and so forth, 
And that matches very closely with interests of many religious communities who see that the create the care of creation is something they're called to do by God. And they want to be good stewards of creation and can do that much better if they understand the environment more accurately th through uh, what we know from science. And of course, many religious communities are called to serve the poor around the world and to do things to uplift those who are impoverished or endangered. And they, these faith communities can do a much better job of that if they understand the science of climate, the science of agriculture, the science of biology better. So there's actually a strong interest and synergy between what scientists uh, are learning and are curious about and what faith communities also want to learn and to uh, to use in their ministries and actions. And that's what the, the Dozer or the Dialogue on Science, Ethics and Religion program is, is building upon. And again, we're just finding uh, much enthusiasm, more interest than we know what to do with from both faith communities of different religions and different faith traditions and scientists from many different perspectives. We find that scientists who are people of faith, of which there are many, and scientists who do not profess any religious faith, many of them are also very interested in having a good working relationship with people of faith in their communities and in their classrooms. That's really exciting and encouraging too. Um, and I'm happy to hear that there's such an interest and that the interest appears to be growing. Um, how and why should churches include science in their ministries and congregational life? I think sometimes science is seen as like one of those extra subjects that you might have to check off in high school to get your, to fulfill your requirement, but it, it's kind of in the silo over here. You've got science, you've got math, you've got English, you've got, you know, physical education, uh, but in fact, whether or not you go into a scientific field, science and technology impact every aspect of human life today, whether it's our diet, uh, agriculture, communication, healthcare, uh, and certainly these kind of uh, deeper questions of, of the universe and, and where, how we fit into to our planet and the larger scheme of the universe. And if churches are going to be effective in their ministries, they really have to have a, a, a good relationship with science. That means recognizing that science is, can be seen as a gift of God to help us understand the details of God's creation in greater truth and greater, uh, in, in greater detail. And also um, churches can incorporate that knowledge in, in, in ministries in more effective ways. One reason young people often feel sometimes like churches may be irrelevant to their lives is that they don't see churches embracing mainstream science or even bringing it up. And I think churches can do well by showing their young people that science is welcome, uh, that you don't have to do kind of different science if you're a Christian than then if you're not, that science should be, should be in its best form, a search for the detailed truth of the natural world. And that can be a friend and complement to understanding the other kinds of, of truths of a relationship with God and our need for that, that are revealed in, in the other revelations of God's word. 
I think uh, it's it's been proposed, I, I think, by Francis Bacon, if I remember correctly, that God has revealed uh, himself through uh, different books, the book of God's word that we have in scripture and the book of nature, God's world. Um, and we can learn something about God through studying both of those books, in a sense. And of course, for Christians, God is most fully revealed, God's character is most fully revealed in in the person of Jesus Christ. So churches, I think, would would help their congregations to be more effective and to feel, uh, and for people to understand that the faith is very relevant to modern life by bringing in good science, not fringe science, making sure that the science is actually a good science into the conversations where it's relevant. And also, I think science is sometimes brought in to discussions in the church as though there must be some kind of conflict, you know, uh, and that's really something that's unfortunate. That's really kind of recent in terms of human history. I don't think there was seen a, a conflict between science and and Christian faith until just a little over a century ago when that idea was kind of formally posited and um, it's been kind of debunked uh, by scholars, but it's still kind of out there in popular culture and even in churches that somehow science is something that must be anti-faith and or faith must be something that has to protect itself from science. It doesn't help when there are some prominent spokespeople, both in scientific circles and in faith leadership circles that sometimes say things that promote this kind of sense of conflict. But if you look in kind of the rank and file of the work of science and the rank and file of of Christian faith, there is there isn't conflict. In fact, there are quite a few people who are Christians who are devoting their lives to scientific research and, and the uses of science to serve others. And they are living examples of how science and faith can walk hand in hand. So another thing churches can do is to raise up people in their own congregations who are doing science related work, whether it's scientific research or science teaching or using science to serve others in medicine or in other ways, and just have them talk about what they do um, in their daily life as a ministry. Um, and seeing that working in science is a way of, is, is a way of ministry uh, in, that, in that realm of service. And then another way science can be brought, I think, productively into the church life is Bring, bring science into a sense of worship. Now, certainly in, in astronomy, that's, that's easier than maybe than in looking at other, some other fields of science. You have to dig a little deeper to kind of make that connection of people of a sense of awe and wonder. But certainly choosing hymns and, and, and sharing some recent discovery of science from the pulpit and then meshing that in with reading a psalm of praise or singing a song of praise that uh, that recognizes and celebrates these discoveries of science help people bring that all together you know that 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 this is god's universe nothing that we discover is going to surprise god it glorifies god and that let praise and wonder and curiosity be the first reaction to science in the Christian context or at the, in the Sunday school or at the summer youth camp or in the youth group, you know, let, let science be seen as a positive thing. Go, go to the science museum as a, as a church field trip, not to critique the museum, but to celebrate what, the, what, what's been learned and is on display there. Um, have a science fair, you know, these are the kinds of things I think would help congregations 
see scientific exploration as working hand in hand with with understanding um, the wonder of God. And that doesn't mean there aren't difficult questions. I mean, surely as we discover more in science, there are things that are difficult um, and hard to easily mesh with our understanding of a good God uh, when we see things like plate tectonics on planet Earth that, that are helpful for re replenishing our atmosphere, but they also cause earthquakes that cause much suffering. You know, why would God allow that? Or you know, other things that, that have that create difficult questions. Right now, of course, we're talking about viruses. Why would a good God enable the development of viruses that can kill and harm many, many people? So st studying creation doesn't always give one a, one a sense of, of warm, fuzzy feelings, but I think it, it can enrich our understanding of the complexity and majesty of of God's creation and, and helps motivate us to try to understand it better in order to help people um, live in this creation. Well, I, I've got to jump in at this point, and it's kind of unfair because you gave an answer to a question I haven't asked yet, and that is by suggesting, you know, when, when David writes um, the heavens declare the glory of God, he, he writes it in a songbook first. So your connection between science and praise i think is is more than valid and it's it's a um, refreshing answer so i'm going to ask you a difficult question then based on some of the language you've used uh, hitherto in in our conversation and that is when referring to the big bang you were careful to say um when time began in this universe and and then again um when you said uh, a comment about the universe or multiverse. So my question begins with that. There's, there's a, a famous apologist who has resurrected a philosophical argument from some medieval Muslim philosophers. Um, and much of uh, at least Western apologetics now is enamored with the idea of um, using the Kalam cosmological argument to reach out to um, the atheists as proof of God or as at least evidence that God exists. My question to you then is, because you seem like somebody who's open to multiverse, um, and I think that's uh, very humbling, and also uh, the idea of exoplanets might, might someday, <laughs> if someday we get a glimpse beyond the curtain and realize that there have been previous, that, that there is a multiverse or or that we find life on another planet. Um, it doesn't seem like that would hamper your faith. However, do you think it's a mistake when an apologetic is an apologetic for a metaphysical argument is built on physical foundations? In other words, is that, do you, in your opinion, possibly a, a category error um, to build an argument on something that might fail in a hundred years? Um, yes, the short answer is yes. I think it's um, a little bit risky to build an argument uh, for God based on our current understand scientific understanding of the natural world, because our current scientific understanding of the natural world can change drastically. I just think about in the just in the last century. We've gone from 
understanding that everything has a kind of what we call a, a Newtonian kind of cause and effect um, prescribed physical uh, um, progression in the sense that everything kind of must be therefore kind of predetermined because everything is simply reacting to some force before it from the beginning of time to something that kind of blew our minds when quantum, when the quantum nature of the physical world became, we became aware of that in the 20th century. So quantum mechanics basically turned physics upside down. And we now know that uncertainty is basically one of the very building blocks of nature. No one would have predicted that before. So when I, um, hear people kind of building a kind of proof of God kind of argument on things that seem very clear right now, I do get a little uncomfortable. So a lot of times people want to parallel, Christians want to parallel the Big Bang cosmology of, of the universe with as a kind of a proof for the truth of scripture. Now, that might throw some people who think who may think that Big Bang cosmology is at, at odds with scripture. But in fact, the idea that our universe had a, had a beginning um, was controversial in the scientific community uh, about a century ago. Uh, there were some who really held that the steady state theory was a much better theory, both scientifically, that the universe basically had al always been here, um, but also philosophically, because if the universe had always been here, you didn't have to have the kind of theological implications that you would have, you could have if the universe has had a beginning. And yet, as the evidence has piled in through astronomical observations, and other types of science, it became more and more clear in the early decades of the 20th century that, that scientifically speaking, the universe that we live in seems to have had a fantastic beginning, which the, the, the doubters of that idea called the Big Bang, uh, this Big Bang theory. Um, but in fact, it turns out that this idea that our universe did have a kind of dramatic beginning um, is more consistent with what we're observing and that the universe has developed and changed since then over billions of years is very clear through observations of astronomy as well as observations of what's happened on our own planet over the last few of those billions of years. So, so now, you know, that idea of, of a beginning of a universe is now kind of seen more on the side of, a, of, of lending itself parallels to a biblical story of, of, the, of, of, of the universe having a beginning and a dramatic one at that uh, in parallel with the kind of let there be light story of, in, in Genesis. So in keeping with that, many Christians now use our understanding of what we call Big Bang cosmology, that our universe had a beginning and that it's developed over time uh, as a parallel to what we see in Genesis, um, you know, notwithstanding that the timeline of, of creation, according to the Big Bang Theory, takes lots of time, that the, the, the days of Genesis should not be interpreted as literal days. 
but Christians kind of use this as an apologetic. And I do too, to some extent, because it is very intriguing to me that the, the days of, of the literature of Genesis, which weren't meant to be scientific discussions of the details of, of creation, but nevertheless, the days of creation somewhat parallel the, the progression that we see scientifically in the development of light and of energy and of matter and eventually of stars and planets and life. Um, and in fact, there are some Christians in science who look at that very carefully. They have a kind of day age view of, of Genesis and see those parallels very strongly. Hugh Ross is, is someone who uh, looks at this as a Christian astrophysicist. Um, but I'm, I'm concerned when we make too close of a parallel that way, because just as you said, scientific theories change. And I don't believe those original scriptures were actually meant by God to be, uh, to, to kind of wrap us into a certain scientific view of the universe and that that science can then be used to be an apologetic back to kind of prove the truth of scripture and the truth of God. Uh, because there, there's so many surprises. And I think, for example, of, um, fine-tuning arguments. Many people use the argument that our universe has, has a very um, precise ranges for fundamental constants, like how strong is gravity? How strong is electricity? These kinds of things, the electrical forces, the gravitational forces, they must have been within certain ranges in order for the universe to develop as it has over billions of years to the point where it could have stars that form and generate these heavier elements that can enable plants to form, that enable stability uh, over long periods of time so that life itself, advanced life like us can form and thrive. That's all dependent on having these con fundamental constants of the universe being very precise, the speed of light, uh, the strength of gravity, these kinds of things, if it were any different, then we would not have a universe that's habitable. People use that as an argument for God. Although, you know, you know I'm intrigued by fine-tuning arguments, but I'm also a bit uh, concerned that if we take them too seriously as kind of the proof of God, then when we find out that maybe through future research, that maybe those fundamental constants don't have to be so finely tuned for us to end up with a universe like we have, well, then where does that go as a proof of God? Uh, I'm intrigued by fine-tuning, but it's not something that my faith depends on. I had faith in God before I learned anything about fine-tuning. So, so fine-tuning and the arguments from, from nature, I think, are not good proofs for God. However, I do think there's some strength in looking at complementarity. You know, which kinds of frameworks of nature are more, um, and which views of whether or not there is purpose, uh, make more sense together, which, which are more compatible. And to me, when I do look at the natural world, I can't answer all the complicated questions about it, but it makes, it is more um, synergistic with a view of purpose and purposeful creation than with purposeless creation. As I look at the universe as a whole and I see the development 
the physical development of the universe that leads toward a universe that can support advanced life, that can ask the kinds of questions that we're having, that can even posit the existence of God, and for some of us feel like we actually can have a personal relationship with God, that is much more, uh, makes more sense to me with a universe of purpose um, than a universe that has, has had no purpose. Yet that's a philosophical conclusion. I can't conclude that or prove that kind of conclusion through scientific tools, but I can show how, at least for me, certain models of both science and theology uh, make more sense and are more compatible than others. And I think it's that synergy, it's the holistic picture, what makes uh, more sense as a whole in terms of looking at both the science and the, the faith questions um, that are powerful arguments to me more than trying to prove the existence of God or prove one's faith through a particular scientific model that may change as our science changes. I would say that for me personally, that the compatibility of, of kind of the big picture uh, is what keeps me convinced of, of the truth of Christian faith, because it isn't the case that I don't have any questions or troubles with some of the uh, some of the elements of the faith or scripture, I, you know, I'm troubled, for example, why would God enable a universe where innocent people and even innocent animals uh, seem to be the brunt of suffering? That doesn't seem to be compatible with other things that I understand about the nature of God as revealed in scripture. I'm troubled by uh, um, the way people treat one another uh, sometimes. Uh, and of course, we all should be in some sense. How does that fit in? And yet, when I look at, at the, the scriptural revelations as a whole, um, I see that even the darker parts of human nature are, um, are revealed and acknowledged in scripture. And in fact, God hates what is painful. God does not like death. Um, even though death is part of the natural order of things, there's a reason why we grieve and suffer. God isn't really pleased with death in terms of removing us from relationship with one another. And that is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is such an amazing and important miracle. It shows that that God himself cares about the things that trouble us and that the picture that is revealed to us in the Christian faith as a whole of human need for a relationship with God, of human sin and our ability both in community and as individuals to be selfish, to be cruel, um, and, and to do evil things is very real, and that suffering is very real, and yet God recognizes that and has, uh, has provided us a hope out of that in the future. So all of that meshes with the reality of life that I see around me and is what kind of convinces me over and over again of the truth revealed in the gospel as a whole, even though I may not always understand and I have qualms, many qualms with some of the particular elements within the faith, within scriptures and so forth. That's kind of how um, I see a, a realistic, robust faith at, at the level of Christianity. And then I think that's kind of how we should see creation as a whole as we look at the big picture, does it mesh more with a picture of purpose or with a picture of no purpose? 
And to me, when I look at the history of the universe as a whole and its development to be able to support advanced life through the majestic development of galaxies and stars, that to me is a picture that's more compatible with a picture of purpose than no purpose, philosophically speaking, even though I will, may have some specific qualms and questions about some of the details of what's happened over the history of creation and the universe. So, so you made a statement about um, in relation to churches embracing embracing science, and uh, and and you made a comment about fringe positions or fringe science. Um, and then then you go and talk about how science is always changing and theories could be overturned. And so so I know that there are people who would say who would hope perhaps, or believe that, that current theories will be overturned and that these some of these fringe views will be proven true in the end, um, that the Earth maybe really is only 6,000 years old and some new discovery is going to uh, upset all of the physics that we know and make, make a 6,000-year-old Earth um, plausible. Um, is, is that likely? I mean, is is that type of overturning of so many disciplines um, probable or reasonable? And how do you help people understand that maybe that really can't happen? I think we have to ask, why would we, as Christians, why would we even want that to happen? And it, it depends, it, I think it gets back to, again, looking at scripture itself, because the idea of even uh, of you know wanting some kind of scientific result uh, based on a view of scripture is is rooted in an interpretation of scripture. So uh, this is rooted in looking at let's say that the creation account at the beginning of Genesis and and kind of looking at the the days that are given there as literal days, 24-hour days, and then sometimes counting generations that are listed in the Bible from from Adam on on through Jesus uh, and, and kind of using that as a timeline to estimate how long humans must have been on the planet. Um, but using scripture in that way may not be the best way. I mean, God has given us uh, knowledge and understanding and people of faith have been very careful to try to understand the original language and how the original audiences for those scriptures would have understood it and the truths they would have taken from it. Certainly some of the earliest Christians in the first few centuries did not believe, even though they, they had nothing like modern science yet, but they, they did not believe those earliest scriptures were meant to reveal the details of the timeline and the mechanisms of, of God's creation. I mean, just reading St. Augustine, for example, uh, makes that clear. So, so we need to be careful that we're not trying to, to uh, take a message from Scripture that God never intended and then try to force it onto the natural world. That's kind of backwards. I think what we take from Scripture is, is the best we understand is the message that God wants us to get from those Scriptures. And I think theology and, and hermeneutics itself is a human endeavor that God can endow 
with with great skill, but where it's still done through humans who are not perfect, just like science is done through humans who are not perfect. So uh, God reveals truth in scripture. Humans do our best, hopefully with God's help, to interpret and understand that scripture and that that skill continues to grow and change over time as we understand more and more about the original cultures and the original scriptures themselves. And then just like science is, is constantly being honed as we understand the natural world better. So first of all, you have to understand, you know, is there a motivation in scripture for Christians to try to want the science to give us, uh, for example, a, a universe that's a certain age um, or not? And I don't think so. I really don't think that the best use of scripture, uh, given the, God, the knowledge that God has given us, at least to this date and time, compels us to want the universe to be a certain age. That, and in fact, God has given us, I think, the scientific skills to study the details of creation and is giving us a much more glorious answer that God has enabled a universe based on uh incredible forces of, of nature that God is the author of to develop into this uh, incredible collection of galaxies and stars and unseen dark matter um, that has enabled uh, not only the beauty of stars that we see, but a, a variety of exotic planets, even in our own solar system, and this wonderful earth that we live on that has not only human life, but just this incredible diversity of life that we're still discovering. We're discovering life at the bottoms of the oceans um, that we didn't even know about before. We're discovering life forms in the rainforests and life forms even in some of the coldest and most inhospitable parts of the planet, which is what makes me think, you know, if God has enabled life in all its diversity, even on this planet, uh, why not other planets? You know, I'm, I'm open to that. So anyway, getting back to your question, first of all, you have to ask the motivation. Why should Christians even want the science to come to a different conclusion than it is? I don't think we, we need to do that because I don't think scripture rightfully and, and respectfully treated wants us to do that or compels us to do that. Secondly, I think that the scientific enterprise, which is imperfect and done by imperfect humans, but it tends to navigate uh, through lots of messy experiments and, and kind of uh, some science will correct or change the conclusions from previous science doing things better. So it's, it has a self-corrective mechanism, which isn't perfect, but it does help us understand things better. So I think of how four centuries ago, Galileo using the telescope, a piece of technology, helped to confirm a theory of Copernicus that maybe, just maybe, the Earth was not in the center of the solar system with everything else orbiting around the Earth, but maybe the sun was in the center and the planets, including Earth, were orbiting the sun. Now, Galileo's telescope observing, doing the experiments, actually helped to confirm this idea that bodies can orbit other bodies. Moons were orbiting Jupiter and that fit in with a model of Jupiter itself and other planets orbiting the sun. Uh, many thought that that was a conflict for scripture, which says the earth cannot be moved. Um, and yet even at the time, theologians realized that the, that scripture was never meant to prescribe a physical uh, scientific 
fact of earth being immovable. It was talking about a much deeper, more important spiritual principle. And so I think we have to be careful about how we're interpreting scripture and how we're interpreting nature and not try to have one skill set, uh, try to answer the kinds of questions it wasn't meant for. Do I think science is going to suddenly realize that the universe is a lot younger than it is? No, because we have a lot of evidence from very different directions about the age of the universe. We can measure it through uh, looking at the expansion rate and the expansion history of the universe. We can look at specific stars, the oldest stars in the universe, and gauge their ages by their composition. We can look at the planet Earth itself. Uh, which is younger than the universe because it only formed a few billion years ago. And we can look at its uh, its composition, its history. We can look at um, atoms and the nature of material in the universe and gauge its age uh, that way. So we have different independent means of looking at the age of the universe. We can even look at what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is looking anywhere in the universe. And we see uh, the, the predicted leftover quiet radiation that's still there from the very beginning of our universe 13.8 billion years ago. And it's there and it's exactly the energy and the, the temperature, as we say, that it should be if our universe had a majestic beginning about 13.8 billion years ago and has been expanding and cooling ever since. All of these things indicate that I think we're kind of in the right ballpark scientifically as to the age of the universe. And that has uh, nothing to do with what scripture is telling us about God's role in this. God, the scripture is telling us that God is the author of creation, the author of this 13.8 billion year history of the universe, the author of whatever came before, the author if there's other universes. That's the truth that scripture is telling us and that we don't even worship this majestic universe. We worship the creator who's even greater than this universe. Let's not miss the uh, the greater truths of scripture for trying to make it tell us things about the details of the natural world. I also think that we miss things if we, if we try to, uh, in some sense, feel forced to diminish the age or size of the universe, uh, we're diminishing God. The psalmist wrote um, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And for me, at least as an astronomer, one of the things that enriches my, my faith and my awe in God is understanding how many billions of galaxies there are and how long, I can't even fathom it, the universe has been developing. That truly deepens my sense of of awe, even a reverent fear of God. When I recognize these, these epochs of time that are impossible for me to even imagine, that deepens my reverence for God. And we, we miss that, I think, if we don't celebrate this, recognize it and celebrate these discoveries of science um, in the congregations and in our circles of faith. They are not things to be denied or shied away from. They are things to be recognized received as truth uh, gained through God's gift of science and then used to enrich and deepen our faith and our understanding of God. Well, Doctor, you've been very generous with us with your time and um, we're going to let you go, but I, I do want to, um, you, the last thing you just said, you as an astronomer brought up one more last question. Do you, do you have time for one more question? 
Sure. So uh, there was a poll, and I don't have it in front of me, but there was a poll that that showed that a majority of astronomers are theists. I think it was in the 60s somewhere. But it also showed that like a minority of biologists um, were theists. So it was almost like a 60-40 opposite split or something like that. And when I was uh, running an apologetics page, I did an informal poll asking when the people on that page thought the split between science and faith occurred. And I gave them the choice of Galileo and the church uh, over astronomy or Darwin and the church over biology. And 70% of these people, and they weren't lay people, these people were people who ran Christian institutions and man pulpits, 70% blamed Darwin. And I thought to myself, wow, that, that, that's an interesting thing. So uh, my question to you is this, um, uh, why do you think that looking at a telescope um, over looking at a microscope would give somebody a greater opportunity to appreciate that God is the agent of creation? And uh, is, it, is there something there or is it simply that we are um victims of our past and the the scopes the, the the ghosts of the scopes monkey trial um in other words why is an astronomer more likely to believe in god than a biologist i don't know because i'm not a biologist but mm. i can i can speculate that uh, for people in general, what I what I sense now as I talk to anyone, whether it's a person, a, a congregation of religious faith, or whether it's people who don't have any particular religious faith, but everyone can look at, at the universe and look at these images we're getting from telescopes from space and have this sense of of awe and wonder and humility. Um, sometimes people even feel insignificant. Um, but I also feel like there's a sense of significance that we can take, that we can even recognize the universe and understand that we're a part of this majestic uh, place. When you get to the point of biology, which for astronomers is just this tiny little piece of time at the end of, of, of uh, so far of, of the, of the 13.8 billion year development of history of the universe, um, uh, you get to the point of how did life come along? I think um, for astronomers, it's it's kind of it seems kind of in a sense. I won't. Uh, I'll use the word seamless, but we can see the development over billions of years of generations of stars creating heavier elements, which eventually enables the formation of solid bodies like planets around stars, and then those solid bodies themselves have the the uh, the complex material that's required for life. We don't yet know exactly how life starts, um, but we can kind of see the pathway. And then for us, the biologists take over at that point um, for this, like what might be seen a small fraction of the history of the universe when life has been uh, present on planet Earth. Life itself has been present for most of the history of planet Earth in simple form, but advanced life hasn't been a present only for a small fraction of the history of life on Earth. So I kind of see that more in a continuum. I could imagine, though, that we, many people, both people of faith and not, have been kind of pre-programmed with this idea that humans 
are somehow must somehow be biologically different from other life on earth and biology is telling us that it is not in fact that humans um have evolved which simply means that things are changing over time um and other life forms have too on planet earth and to me it's all very marvelous because we are all life forms on earth have this ability plasticity in a, in, in a way to adapt to environments and niches in the environment and changes in the environment which means that all life forms on earth right now have been adapting over time to to thrive in the particular environmental niches that we have now and certain types of life on planet earth have grown more social and more intelligent and that includes advanced primates but it also includes um dolphins and elephants and uh, we need as christians to recognize that uh, there are other types of sentient and sensitive and social uh, creatures and communities on this planet within the animal world not just humans and yet humans uh, have have been endowed we believe as christians with a special responsibility we, we what we do has great impact not only on other humans but on the other life forms on planet earth whether we like it or not we are we have dominion over planet earth that is a truth of scripture that's undeniable when we see the impact humans have for good and, and ill on the planet and other creatures now that does sometimes seem to to give people in science and outside the sense that gee there must not be maybe that maybe the whole idea of a god is not real because what you know what i always heard was that humans were created differently and are somehow uh, um, different from other creatures but biologically we're seeing that humans share the same types of physiology and maybe even the same types of social and mental structures as some other animals so does that mean that the whole god thing is just a story a fable and so many people may come to that kind of conclusion i don't think that's warranted i think we understand even by closer looks at scripture that humans uh, scripture sometimes unflatteringly tells us that we are dust which is really true you know we now know that the, the cells in our bodies are actually made from uh, from stardust from materials created in other stars i think that's marvelous but we are just like other creatures on the planet, our bodies are made of elements that were forged in stars. And our bodies are similar in physiological function to that of other creatures. We're not different in that sense. And we're not even different in the terms of, of the fact that humans do. We now know have feelings and emotions and have love and aggression and even perhaps compassion and complex social structures. And humans have not always been very sensitive to that in, in the lives of other animals. But we do very clearly have a dominion of impact on the other creatures of this planet. Nothing could be truer from scripture and we can see it from our, our own um, impacts on planet Earth and the fact that we feel responsible. And the fact that we're having a conversation like we're having today is something we really don't see other creatures on earth doing we don't know what goes on in their inner spirits but we do sense a kind of 
not only advanced intelligence in humans, but the advanced abilities to contemplate ourselves, our communal history, our communal future, and even to make uh, plans and actions that are uh, distinctly evil toward others or distinctly good. Um, those things seem to be somewhat unique to humans. So um, I don't know why biologists might uh, poll as being less less amenable to belief in God than astronomers, but I think it's probably because all of us biologists and not have been sort of pre-programmed from an early age to think that humans must be somehow biologically different from other species. And when we find out that we're not, um, maybe that makes it easier for, for a biologist to kind of uh, drop the idea of this of God, whereas astronomers can see more more seamlessly the progression of the universe into the point of life as we are living it now. That's my hypothesis. Thank There's you. also a historical aspect to this, I should add, which is that in more recent parts of human Western history over the last century or so, um, often when certain pockets of Christians, especially in the U.S., have taken on science as though it were an enemy, um, they have posited evolution as being anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-theist. And that doesn't have to be the way that it's seen. But because of that, I think many in the bio biological community have seemed to, to kind of have to become defensive toward this uh, manifestation of of Christian expression um, in the last century or so. And so that defensiveness may have caused some biologists to feel like they cannot be people of faith if the people of faith that they see seem to reject what we understand from biology and biological evolution as being true. And so I think that's an unfortunate and an unnecessary sense of antithesis, but that may be some of the reason that biologists may feel more threatened by uh, some of the attacks that they have experienced from people of faith than astronomers have ever experienced. 